You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 26 of Notes from Norwich. Our um, exploration of the showings of Julian of Norwich with three of us. Me first. I'm Chris Arnold. I'm one of the presenters of this here podcast, and I'm here with uh, Jan and with Marguerite. Are you both well this wintry day? Yeah, I am. It's getting Good. up above freezing today in Minneapolis. So, mm. yeah, get some snow melt. Yeah. Yeah, we went out for a walk yesterday in the woods, and there were patches of bare ground beginning to show through the snow. So I'm I'm hoping that we get a bit more snow in the next couple of days because my, my perfect winter day is, is snow covering the ground. But not the roads, and no wind, and sunshine, and temperatures of twenty-two degrees, because that's where, like, if I put on my kind of normal standard walking around outside clothing, I'm perfectly warm at twenty-two degrees. If it gets that much colder than beautiful. that, then I start like, um, then I start feeling it, you know, uh, or that if the wind beautiful. is blowing, so. Yeah. Yeah. So that there, that's that's my prayer for today. <laughs> okay, we are launching into perhaps the. Is is it fair to say that this is one of the top three most significant chapters in Julian's revelations, Julian's showings? I would say so. It's it's the longest, and I think one of the most involved Mm. and I think teaches us a lot about her kind of view of humanity, God, sin, the fall, redemption. Mm. There's a lot packed in there. It it took her 20 years to start unpacking it. So I think that, that alone, that alone speaks to how significant it is in the showings. This is chapter 51 in the showings. And if you haven't read it already and you have a copy of the showings um, there on your bookshelf, uh, hit pause right now and go and read at least the first half of the chapter now, because there's a lot to it. But Marguerite's going to give us a little kind of overview, a summary of what's happening in this, in this potent, powerful uh, parable. Okay. Well, Julian um, is, as, as we talked about last time, Julian is wondering how, how things work. I mean, her whole, um, her whole mission in her, in her writing and her whole experience in her revelation was trying to figure out who God is, what, what God is all about. And this chapter and the parable that God shows her in it is very, very key to that whole purpose, to her entire purpose. And the parable is very short. The chapter is very long. The chapter is, you know, 10, 12 pages long. The parable is two short paragraphs. And all the rest of it is unpacking it and unfolding it and digging into it. The parable is about a Lord and his servant, which in modern times is already a bit of a turnoff to some people because they don't like the idea of, um, of class differences and and status differences, and they don't like the idea of somebody being a a servant to someone that's higher. And 
but this was very, very normal sort of um, an express, a very normal kind of expression of things in Julian's time. So we're just going to, you know, we're just going to have to figure that out and let that go and um, do the, the Lord and the servant. And I'm going to summarize the parable itself for you. Um, it's not much longer than what I'm going to be saying. The Lord is sitting solemnly, restfully, peacefully. The st- servant stands near him to his left side. The servant is loving and sweet, and the Lord looks upon him humbly. Now, mind you, this is the Lord looking humbly on his servant, looking at his servant in a humble way. It is the Lord being humble. So I guess I'm stressing that. Um, Then the Lord sweetly and humbly sends his servant to a certain place to do his will. The servant is so eager and and excited and enthusiastic and gung-ho to do the Lord's will that he dashes off like a madman but and suddenly leaps up, but immediately he falls into a deep pit and receives a great injury. Then he groans and moans and wails and writhes. I mean, he's in serious pain and he cannot help himself. The end. That is the end. That is the end of the parable. That is what Julian has to figure out. That's what we have to figure out. Um, The parable itself is simple. It makes almost no sense because there doesn't seem to be an end to it. There doesn't seem to be any rational reason for it. Um, But we will, you know, but we will unpack that and, and make some sense out of it. So, that is that is the summary of the parable. And like I gestured to, she she talks about this being something that stumps her for years. Um, she it takes her, I think, twenty years before she starts to have any sort of clarity uh, about the the meaning of this parable. Um, so it's it, it's. It's confusing, even for her. And I think the fact that there's so much that she unpacks, just, this is, this is part of why, and Marguerite, you, you say stuff like this, but look, this is part of why I believe Julian, is because there are these things that she's stumped by. If she, that if she were making this up, Like this is this is way more convoluted for her than seems plausible if she made it up. Right. Exactly. Um, and so that's a big part of what I love about this chapter is like her. Like I've been grappling with this for decades. Like she's she. That's what she's telling us. Like this is this is not simple. Um, and it, that that to me demonstrates her her honesty, her vulnerability, um, which for me lends a lot of credence to everything she's told us. So there are two characters in this parable. There's the Lord and the servant, and they clearly have great respect for each other while still remaining in these stations. I mean, neither of them appears 
to actively be seeking to rearrange the nature of their relationship as lord and servant. And yet they, there are hints that there's mutual respect, mutual uh, humble recognition of each other's role mm-hmm. and, and the importance of each other's existence in that role. Um, which I think is something for us to kind of notice and set aside and factor into any interpretation that comes um, in the future. But to me, so this whole Lord and servant thing, it reminds me of the parable of the good Samaritan. Where of course, Jesus tells this parable of, of a um, person who's, uh, waylaid by bandits and beaten up and left for dead in the gutter. And uh, two people walk by and uh, ignore and avoid this person. And then a Samaritan comes by and picks up the man and binds up his wounds and takes him to an inn and um, offers to basically pay for that person's care. Um, and it's, the the reason why it reminds me of that parable is that that's the the parable of the good samaritan is also a parable where you can plug all kinds of different people into the different roles so are we the listeners the person who's been beaten up and left for dead is jesus the samaritan is jesus the one lying in the gutter and um all people who do god's will are the samaritans uh I mean, who is who and and where do you as the listener, as the interpreter, you can plug yourself into any role in any parable and learn something from it, which is one of the great things about parables. I think it's one of the brilliant, you know, I'd expect Jesus to be brilliant, but one of the reasons why Jesus is, why he reveals his brilliance in teaching with parables, because they are... Um, rich in possibility and meaning without ever saying that there's, there's only this one way to interpret it. So that said, the Lord and the servant, can we identify, does Julian ever identify specific characters from the Christian story with those roles? Is one of them Jesus? Is one of them us? Is one of them God, the Father? You know? She does that later. Mm. But first she just pulls it apart to try and see what the meaning is. And she says that she finds meaning in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And she finds meaning in the servant. And she finds two meanings in the Lord, two meanings in the servant, servant. One of each of them is a physical impression and one is a spiritual impression mm. which to me just shows how methodical she is i mean she just she writes this down you know there are two of this and two of this and one of this and one of this and anyway odd for a mystic to be so methodical i just will throw that in there <laughs> um she says that uh that the lord finds no failure or blame in the servant um, that the Lord is humble and that her vision vanished right after that little two paragraphs uh, story. 
And then God directed her understanding to what it all meant. And that's another thing about Julian's experience is that God leads her to understanding. God directs her to understanding. God gently shows her understanding instead of, instead of ramming it home to her. It is a very gentle relationship that she has with God in this revelation of divine love. And her, her interpretation and her, um, her understanding of things and her insights to things are always gently and, and delicately led as opposed to some dramatic experience of ecstasy or anything like that, which is just another thing that makes her special, I think, in, in medieval um, religious people. You use that word, um, well, no, I can't remember the word you used, but like kind of methodical. Um, and that's something that I, I mark as I walk, uh, walk through the revelations is like words like deliberately or diligently. Um, like throughout, she's talking about like she, she reflects on these very intentionally. And that I think is married with this gentle leading. Um, like that's, that's how she unpacks this. She's, she's, I mean, she's, she's got a theologian's brain. Like that's, she, she thinks theologically. Um, as far as like identifying characters, she at first identifies the servant with Adam. And, and this is, this is the thing, like Chris, like the, the multiple valences of characters that you mentioned in the good Samaritan, like this Adam is who she identifies the servant with at first. Later, we will see the servant take on another um, meaning, but at first she's like, she's unpacking this, this language of like the fall essentially Um, that the servant as Adam falls um and this this great injury is is sin um i'm all over the place in this chapter the gaze is noted um the the lord looks on the servant lovingly and humbly um like there's and and when the servant falls she said like the, the greatest misfortune is that he couldn't turn to look at the Lord. Um, he like, that was that he, I mean, she named seven great pains, like the, the bruising, the sluggishness of his body weakness, but fundamentally she says like the, the worst wound that was given was this inability or unwillingness to turn and look at this Lord who is gazing on him. Um, and she says he was intent on his suffering and waiting in woe. That resonates yeah. so deeply. <laughs> Say that again. For the people intent, in the back. He was intent on his suffering and waiting in woe. Like, wow, that is, uh, yeah. 
that strikes home. Um, but this like, so, so identifying Adam with the servant at first, she uses the servant's condition to unpack the nature of sin or, well, almost unpack, but at the same time kind of encapsulate everything she's already said about sin. Um, like this, this parable and her reflection on it is, is both like this like dense exposition, but she also like ties up a lot of the threads that she's so she's uh, threaded throughout the revelation so far. Um, so there's like this idea of like not being able to look at God, um, this idea that the the pain, the suffering is what we inflict on ourselves. Um, that the 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 blame is is not on the part of God. Um, so the servant as Adam is a site for her to kind of reiterate her theology of sin. So the servant falls down, running away, eager to do some sort of task, and falls down into a into a very deep pit and gets hurt physically. You know, we we we're made aware through Julian of these seven great pains. It's basically all the things that you would expect would be the sources of pain when you fall into a pit. If if uh, you were to walk down the street and fall into an open manhole. It would hurt, that kind of thing. I mean, physically it would hurt, but um, but she identifies the most searing pain as basically being a, a sense of spiritual separation, an inability f- for the servant to take comfort in the presence of, or the nearness of God. Um, um, my... Uh, sister uh, has kids. I don't have kids, but my sister has kids. I was visiting my uh, sister at one point when my niece was just a couple of years old, toddler, basically. And we were at the playground because at that point, um, uh, there's a playground near where my sister lived. And we went to the playground and my niece fell down and then she kind of popped her head up and looked around to see where we were. And then she started screaming in pain. Like she needed to see where we were first. And I, and I guess I was talking to my sister about it later. Like parent, uh, children don't know what to do with their pain until they look to their parents to figure out what the response should be. So if the parents flip out and run over and say, Oh my God, my poor baby, you've fallen down. Then the, the children will flip out uh, even more. But if the parents say, well, you fell down, uh, just get back up again and, and walk it off, then <laughs> then the children are more likely to just roll with it and, and quickly recover. Um, so yeah, there's this, this, um, this sense that the, the, the wound is not just a physical wound, which of course hurts. I mean, physical wounds certainly hurt, but they pass quickly. What is deeper is the spiritual wound, the sense of, of 
separation or um, hopelessness that creeps in? Loneliness. The sixth wound is, like the sixth pain is that he lay alone. I looked all about and watched, and neither far nor near, high nor low, did I see any help for him. It's the sense of isolation, um, which, I mean, with the with the scene she's just set, he's not isolated. Like, the, the Lord's watching. But, like, this sense of loneliness. And the f- fourth one that she names is that he was deluded in his reason and stunned in his mind to the extent that he, like he almost forgets what made him leap up and run in the first place. Um, this, this idea of the servant, like running because he's excited to do God's will. Um, fascinating and like especially when you think about like the story of the fall and genesis and like how we've how theologians have tried to parse out human will free will or not um since but um this idea that like in in his falling into the pit and in his like being intent on his suffering he he almost almost not quite loses sight of what his original mission, his original purpose was. Um, I think we also need to note that at no point did the Lord try to stop him from running, try to slow him down mm -hmm. or get up from his place and go to him. And change, the Lord did not try to change things. And the other thing that struck me about this um, in this reading is that there's, and maybe it's just me being a literalist, but there's a tendency to, to look at this parable and see it as contained in time. You know, this is what happened one day. And then the servant guy falls in the pit and the Lord sits there and the servant guy can't, et cetera, et cetera. But this is, this, this is eternity. This is like all of time. Yeah. And so, so this, this poor servant guy's pain is still as, as our pain that we have right now today, what people are having all over the world. Um, the fact that we can't see God watching us is now it's not just in this little story or, or in Genesis two, or mm-hmm. it's, it's forever. Yeah. She's frequently taking this kind of, perspective of the totality of time like we talked about like in in the conversation about all god does all things this perspective she adopts of viewing viewing the whole of salvation history as a whole um viewing the whole of time cohesively from almost from like outside of it um and i think 
the way she unpacks this parable as she goes on really underlines that like this is this is eternity this is this is the whole of the story this is not just a moment in the story like this it the parable is capturing the whole arc of salvation yes now i think it's pretty common and i think she does later on um, draw this analogy between the the Lord and servant, between God and humanity, and this is sort of a metaphor for the fall or this uh, sense of separation from God that comes as a side effect of some action on part of humanity. But what gets twisted and sort of flipped on its head is that that I think the the common standard narrative of the fall is that humans were disobedient. Humans were intentionally going against what God had asked them to do and had broken the rules. And so what what flips this around, if this is kind of a, a metaphor or a narrative or a parable or a retelling of that, you know, original flaw in in the human plan is that the servant is rushing away to do god's will or to do the lord's will yes not to break god's will um which is pretty bold thing to say just even even if you are not totally on board with kind of augustinian notions of original sin I mean, it's kind of a common Christian thing that it was a violation of God's will that separated humanity from that fellowship with God, not an eagerness to do God's will that was so eager that it caused uh, humanity to be rash and a little bit foolish and to not notice that there was a pit there to fall into. It's pretty bold. Well... You could argue that Adam and Eve didn't see the fruit as a pit to fall into. You could argue that they were seeking knowledge, that they were naive and deceived by the snake, deceived, blinkered, that they, you know, Julian clearly states that the Lord does not blame the servant for falling into the pit. Mm. There is no blame attached to the servant. There is no love lost between the Lord and the servant, not even a tiny little smidgen of it. And yes, it is a very different way of looking at the fall of creation. Very, very different. Revolutionary, unheard of. I mean, the whole thing is how to figure out the mystery of accountability without the burden of judgment. I mean, that's the whole revelation, right? Like how we can make sense of the moral imbalance of the universe that needs to be fixed and somebody is to blame for it, but without assigning blame to anybody. And that's the paradox, like somebody somebody messed up 
but they didn't really do anything wrong as they were <laughs> in the middle of messing up. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, the fact that we default to like language of like somebody did something wrong or like somebody is to blame and like that. Or the universe isn't the way it should be. And right. It's not the way that God designed it to be. So there must be a reason for it. And that's, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the, the whole Christian meditation on on our existential crisis. Like we know in, intuitively, but also scripturally that things are not the way that they could be, or that they should be, or two steps. If we sense that things are not the way they could be, it's because they aren't the way they should be. And God has left some vestige of memory in, in us genetically, spiritually, whatever it is. We yes. remember paradise even we haven't quite forgotten yeah the joy that with which we ran yeah eden is baked into us somewhere and we're hungry for that land even though none of us have ever seen it it's kind of a thousand generation old nostalgia i love that yeah but so god wouldn't have caused that separation to happen so obviously there is a flaw that is nobody's fault, but somehow there there's a fault that's nobody's fault. And that fault exists in each of us, but it's also curiously inevitable. Like there's nothing that I can do about the fact that I have sinned and will continue to sin until I'm done with it. Um, So I think if, we oh. can we can avoid specific sins. I mean, certainly we can, you know, well, you can not go out and rob a bank, and I mean, they're just like, of course, we can we can we can avoid sin sins, but we can't not sin because of our fallen nature. Our fallen nature. If you think of sin as being an absence or an ignorance of God or turning away from God. We can't not do that. We will always do that, but we will always, Chris, as you said, we will always have that lingering urge for Eden that is in our hearts, that is that is our need for God that everybody has. Every, every, everybody has that. And that can't go away either. There's this she like her focus on like the redemption. So she talks about not only like is the Lord not assigning blame, but she sees him greatly rejoice. Um she's like he shows compassion and pity outwardly and and inwardly. She sees him greatly rejoice because of the honorable repose and nobility that he wills and shall bring his servant to by, by his plenteous grace. Like this, this, 
idea that like there will be something that comes out of this that is greater than what would have been if we never f- fell into the pit. Exactly. Um, yeah, so b- flipping this kind of medieval notion and some of Canterbury's notion of the honor of God that needs to be satisfied and an extra penalty needs to be paid by the sinner in order to not only to to pay back what was stolen, but to satisfy the extra honor that was betrayed. It That gets flipped on its head, and here's the Lord saying, I've already rewarded my servant with all kinds of good things anyway, because he's my servant and I love him. But now because he's fallen down and he's hurting, when we get him out of that pit, we're going to throw a party for him. And that makes me think of the parable of the prodigal son and how the father has already given the prodigal son everything that the father owes him, which is his inheritance. The prodigal son, of course, comes to the father and says, even though you're not dead yet, dad, give me what you've promised me in the will, which is a pretty big, kind of slap in the face. Um, so that the father has already given the prodigal son everything that the father owes. And even then, when the prodigal son returns, the father throws the biggest party and the other son complains about it. You've never thrown me a party. And the prodigal son yet says, yeah, but I mean, the, the father says, yeah, but, uh, this is different because there's a homecoming happening and that's, that kind of goes above and beyond everything else. And so I think we can get caught up. Humans can get caught up in, in our bizarre notion of justice and right, rightness. Um, and even when we think we're not doing it, humans can fall into a tendency of wanting to kind of balance the books and like, make sure that everybody is getting what we think everybody deserves. But God is always saying, no, there's, you know, this, this isn't a zero sum game. I created creation. I can make more. (laughs) Um, God doesn't have to worry about inflation. She, I mean, she almost makes it i'm thinking about like the the conception that the fall was because we did something wrong um but she talks about this like this transformation this this the the woes turning into rewards as fitting and necessary seeing the lord's great goodness and his own honor that his dear worthy servant whom he loves so much would be truly and blessedly rewarded without end beyond what he would have been if he had not fallen. There's that she doesn't go so far as to say that like God ordained the fall or like, but there is, it feels like there's this suggestion that this was always going to happen. Because 
because it is through this happening that creation reaches its actual telos, which is this wholeness out of brokenness. So this is this high medieval fight. It's not a fight. Uh, I'll call it a fight because that's controversial. But this big controversy between the Dominicans and the Franciscans in the Middle Ages, Duns Scotus and Thomas Aquinas, was would the would the incarnation have happened? Would Jesus have been born if the fall hadn't happened? And of course, it's, I mean, it's shoulda, woulda, coulda. Like we live in a world in which the fall happened, and it's the only world we know about. So it's uh, it's just a thought experiment that cannot be tested or verified. Um, we live in the world we live in, and the incarnation happened. Uh, but that the essence of that debate is that that one side says, I think it's the Dominicans say that the fall happened and the incarnation was the response to the fall. So if the fall hadn't happened, the incarnation wouldn't be necessary because there would be no need to redeem anything. And the Franciscans say the incarnation would have happened one way or another, even if humanity hadn't experienced the fall in that sense of separation, the divine plan was always to include the incarnation at some point in order to elevate humanity and therefore the rest of creation to a new level that hadn't right. been, hadn't been achieved at uh, in Eden. So for the Dominicans, the incarnation is about restoring something back to the perfection that it had at the beginning. But the Franciscans say that what was present at the beginning wasn't perfect. It was good, but God had plans for for progress. Yeah. Um, and again, I mean, we, there's no way we can test this experiment. And yeah. uh, it, it's a great thing to argue about. <laughs> and I, I think Julian is almost like saying, like picking up, well, there's no way we can test this experiment, but let's take out the counterfactual and she, it's like she sidesteps the counterfactual that like what if the fall hadn't happened um and focuses our attention on what does happen through this transformation um which i think takes the franciscan view almost and and then doesn't frame it in terms of this well what if but she's like focusing us on this is this is what happens. This is the role it plays. Like, and she she seems to focus a lot more on the role, suffering, the fall, bad things have in the grand scheme of things. Looking back, than she does looking for like a causal A causes B. Her she, she's she's not so much she doesn't seem to adopt that mode of thinking of like a causes b a a is a necessary precursor of b she's looking back at time and saying this is this is how this is with fitting this was this was the role that this thing played yeah in this I, divine drama i i think julian 
Philippians sees time as all one piece, not as something happens and then God makes a decision about this and then something else happens and then God makes a decision about that. And, you know, that God is reactive. It's not interventions. They're not interventions for Julia. It's not an intervention. It's a plan. It's a big scheme and a big plan. And obviously we don't know it all, but that that's how I read it anyway. I read it that it's all one big plan. One big story that has it re- a yeah. beginning and a middle and an end and it's already it's already happened. Yeah. It reads to me as like more in line with that Franciscan Don Scotus kind of perspective on like the incarnation being this self-revelation and this bringing forward, but without the, but from a very different like framework, like not very viewing time and salvation history very differently that she's, she's, I think coming to the same sorts of conclusions, this was, this was a process of self-revelation and elevation, but she's doing it from a time is all one piece. Um, like sort of time frame. Yep. Well, any last thoughts about this first half of chapter 51? Well, Julian talks about, she asks the question about why God, meaning the Lord, or the Lord meaning God, is sitting on bare earth. Oh, yes. Yeah. She says that that this is because the servant fell and that man's soul is to be God's city and dwelling, but that is not ready at this point. So God is sitting there on bare earth until the final moment, until the sun brings his city into its noble beauty, as in until the sun is revealed and redeems creation. Yeah. So. Therefore, our kind father, rather than give himself any other space, sits upon the earth awaiting mankind. Yeah. I, I love that mm. phrase. It's like awaiting mankind. Yeah. Who are muddled with earth or down in the pit until whenever by his grace. So his, his city is down in the pit. And and rather than build a different city, he's waiting there. Right. It's, it's beautiful. You know, Julian talks about how we are one with God, and this is this is a way of expressing that. Oh. Yeah. Who has got a little bit to read to to wrap up this episode? I will go back to this fitting and necessary bit. And this an inward spiritual showing of the Lord's meaning settled into my soul 
in which I saw that it was fitting and necessary, seeing his great goodness and his own honor, that his dear worthy servant, whom he loved so much, would be truly and blessedly rewarded without end, beyond what he would have been if he had not fallen. Yea, and to such an extent that his falling and all the woe he had received from it would be transformed into high and surpassing honor and endless bliss. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.